This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hey, everyone. Welcome in episode four of Radar, our Nextworks podcast, where we want to give you a monthly overview of all the cool things that happened in the world of innovation and technology. I'm here with the full panel this time. Last time, unfortunately, Laurence wasn't there. Everyone is very curious, Laurence. How are your teeth doing? Very good. Very good. Thank you for asking. Um, it's very kind. We had many, many messages of people saying what, what actually happened with her. So we're very glad that you're here and that the sound is perfect today. And then I have uh, Joren, of course, uh, our uh, project leader at Nextworks. I have Pascal, our China expert. We have Peter from the Apple Chapel talking about innovation and strategy. And then we have Julie, the CEO of Nextworks in this podcast. Welcome, everyone. Um, we're making this recording on May 26th, and just before we started the recording, we saw the news coming in that Amazon just acquired MGM Studios for $8.5 billion, which is a next step in the streaming wars. And it, it makes a lot of sense that Amazon tries to do something. If you look at Amazon Prime, almost everyone in the US is on Amazon Prime, so almost everyone is on Amazon Prime Video. But if you look at the amount of time that people spend on Amazon Prime Video, it is a lot lower than on Netflix. Uh, just to give you an idea, on Netflix, it's about, on average, an hour a day that people spend on the platform. With Amazon Prime Video, it's about 20 minutes a day. So this is, I think, an interesting step forward for them for a couple of reasons. They have now more access to more content, obviously, with James Bond as the top production. Next to that, of course, the cost of licensing all the content on their platform is being reduced to zero. And now they also have the opportunity to license it out to others. So the cost can become a revenue. So an interesting model, an interesting step forward. And let's see what it brings. I, I don't know if, if you guys checked it out. The news just came in. If anyone had some other thoughts on this that you want to throw in the group. Well, what a steal, eh? At 8.4 billion, it's almost uh, as if they haven't paid anything for it. Uh, no, it's a very interesting uh, approach, I think. And funny to know maybe that uh, the Broccoli family uh, was probably the blocker in uh, this whole negotiation going on because they didn't want James Bond to end up with a lot of different franchises, different series for M, for Money Penny, and for every. I'd love Karen. that. I'd love. I'd love a Money Penny <laughs> special. I mean, that that's what I would pay good. <laughs> money for so you know why not maybe even a, a broccoli series i mean well, i mean i don't even know the family but now i want to know and the Famous prequel families. the childhood of james bond oh, I mean, exactly. you cannot yeah. make enough stuff of james bond but uh, talking about uh, licenses and selling crazy stuff i want to come back to the whole discussion that we had a couple of months ago about nfts uh, Peter explained it brilliantly in our first episode of Radar, what NFTs are. And by now, everyone knows it almost has become mainstream in the meantime. But last week, an interesting case came out from our good friend Gary Vaynerchuk. He started with vFriends, an NFT platform. Of course, Gary Vaynerchuk is always into making content and building his community. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I, I really like this case because it's not just about selling a piece of art or selling a popular tweet or selling a YouTube video. 
It's actually smart contracts that he's selling. And he made his little cartoons, which is a little bit funny if you look at them. But I think the value is in the smart contract that is lying underneath that. So you can now buy NFTs from Gary and they automatically give you access to a conference that he's going to organize every year. But some of these NFTs allow you to invite him into your podcast. You can have him as a speaker. You can have one-on-one coaching with Gary. He asked basically the question, what can I give my community? What's the most valuable thing that I can give them? And his conclusion was my time. And with these NFTs, he basically sold his time to his community. And you can decide to unlock the value of the NFT whenever you want. So you can keep a one-on-one with Gary, but you can also keep it. And, you know, two years from now, maybe it's more or less valuable and you can resell it again. But for me, this is one of the first NFT projects that I see where it's really about engaging with a community rather than just trying to sell a digital asset. I think that's pretty innovative in this approach and that's what I believe in will be the future for you know crypto linked to customer experience. So I, I fully um, endorse that and I'm a big fan of Gary V, but it's crazy to see what incredible loyal fans he has. And it's also, I think, a very clever way of him to engage that you know, fan community. I mean, that's what he does brilliantly. I mean, uh, fans of Gary V are extreme fans. I remember Stephen... Uh, what was it, uh, two, three years ago, we had a chance to invite Gary V to Antwerp to do a talk. Yeah. We both spoke there, and then we had dinner with him afterwards. And I remember that when we started the dinner, he just put out a tweet, and he said, meet up in an hour and a half. And about an hour later, the chef came to our table and said, what the hell is going on? Because there were hundreds of people outside the restaurants who drove all the way from Amsterdam just to be able to spend half an hour with him. And he, he spent an hour you know, talking to his fans and answering questions. So the way that he engages the community is brilliant. And finding a way using Ethereum to actually put that in a smart contract, I think is an absolute brilliant move. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, he So have he you bought skills. one of them, uh, Stephen? No, not yet. Why not? not? Why not? I mean, you're such That's a, a good fan. question. I'm a fan. I like him. I I should buy one. I will buy the one to get him into our podcast. Ah, that's uh, a good why idea. don't we buy yeah. the one to invite him to the next episode of Radar? So, how expensive would that be? Do you have any idea, Stephen? What no. it would cost to do that? I think thousands, thousands of dollars. I don't know. I would have to check. Yeah, we'll so. we'll see if we can afford it. Huh? Because I remember his speaking fee from last time, Ooh, uh, Peter. My so God. Yeah. that that would be out of our league. Or we can trade. Huh? We can trade. Come on, Julie. Puppy eyes here. Make it happen at Nextworks, please. We really look scared. Yeah. No comment. It's like giving Stephen the credit card on a Thursday evening in San Francisco. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to the next topic, Julie. And um, Peter, you wanted to continue a bit about cryptos and NVIDIA, because if I understood it right, they're going to put a limit on crypto mining in their chips. What was that all about this week? So I don't know how much you know about this, Stephen, but your kids are a little bit younger than mine, but I have a 17-year-old avid gamer as a son. And if you want a serious gaming PC, it needs a very strong GPU, which is basically the graphical processor to handle all that enormous amount of activity. And the last couple of years, the prices of these GPUs have gone up like crazy. 
And it's not because that technology is you know, so exclusive, but because a lot of those GPUs are being bought not for gaming PCs, but actually to mine cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, but even more Ethereum. And it meant that uh, the Ethereum market for crypto has gone so hot that it's almost impossible to find a graphics card now for your gaming PC. I mean, the prices have just you know, doubled and it is absolutely killing. And NVIDIA said, we're going to stop this. So to put that in perspective, I don't know if you saw it recently, but basically on every computer you can mine crypto. I mean, uh, recently there was a wonderful article about somebody who said, can I take an old Commodore 64 and can I mine Bitcoin? And the answer is yes, you can. The only problem is it would take you exactly 50 trillion years to actually mine one Bitcoin on a Commodore 64. <laughs> uh, not only would it take 50 trillion years, it would also cost about 1.1 quadrillion dollars in energy costs to actually mine that one. So not a good idea to use a Commodore 64. So if you go to the complete other end, it's these very, very high-powered GPUs. And if you remember, NVIDIA is the king of the hill there. This is a company that used to make just graphic cards. And then a few years ago, they started to get picked up because most of the people who are into artificial intelligence really needed very high-end computers. And they massively started to snap up NVIDIA because you know, those machines were brilliant to actually do artificial intelligence and neural networks. And now it's completely gone over to the crypto. So to give you an idea, one of the most powerful GPUs on the market is the NVIDIA um, GeForce 1390. I mean, that's really the Rolls Royce out there. And to give you an idea, that can generate 10 teraflops. Now, I don't know how good you are in computing power, uh, but 10 teraflops means 10 to the power of 12, that's a tera, times 10. To give you an idea, if you compare that to the Commodore 64, there is actually um, a difference of 5,000 million. So if you have <laughs> 5,000 million Commodore 64, then you have one NVIDIA GeForce 3090. Wow. And NVIDIA now said, you know what? We're not going to do it anymore. I mean, we, we're sick and tired of all these crypto miners buying our graphic cards. They're not getting into the hands of gamers anymore. So they are now limiting the capability of their computing cards to actually generate Ethereum. And that's what they're going to do. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do we see the same thing with other chip builders or is this uh, a sole operation of NVIDIA? No, I mean, AMD is their number one competitor and they have very similar products. But it's now the first time that we actually see NVIDIA saying we're going to do something about it because NVIDIA wants to really still uh, help the gaming community. Um, at the same time, AMD has introduced their new machines and they said nothing about a limit on crypto because they want to sell a lot of AMDs. Uh, but NVIDIA themselves actually said, but we're also going to build a special purpose card only for crypto mining. So that's right. a whole new yeah. market that's opening up. Wow. But NVIDIA and AMD are certainly the two strongest players in, in that market. Pascal, you wanted to say something? Yeah, no, no. I mean, China has been buying up uh, half of what NVIDIA had in the last years or any company that had GPUs. I mean, specifically for artificial intelligence to start with uh, and also to stock up because of this geopolitical war. So China's been buying loads and loads 
But recently, of course, with uh, the fact that more than 70% of all the mining of uh, Bitcoin and, and lots of cryptocurrency happens in China, because of energy being cheaper in many places, uh, they have bought up every possible chip that is possible that you could get. And so just uh, this week, China announced that they will actually not allow any more mining in Inner Mongolia. And they're going to tell everybody, all these data centers, which have cost millions of dollars, to shut down. And uh, this could go to other provinces as well, which will really influence uh, what's going to happen in the world of crypto. Because uh, the whole China, which has been mining for the whole world, pre pretty much, is now going to move to other countries. And specifically, neighboring countries are very interested in that. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, all these countries. But also the U.S. is now a big... Uh, in demand for moving all these data centers to the US. And it's kind of like uh, weird because the reason that China is doing it uh, primarily is because of uh, energy needs that they want to lower down because they think that if they continue like that, the environment is a huge issue. The mining that is used now, the, the data centers are using the same as the energy for the whole Netherlands or Argentina. It's, it's a whole country that China is using in, in terms of energy needs just for mining this crypto. And so if this now moves outside of China to the US, <laughs> it's going to create a US environmental problem. So I don't know how they're going to deal with that. But uh, it's quite interesting that the US is actually asking to get these data centers now there, while China is trying to get rid of it because of environmental uh, questions. So interesting debate. Well, when China introduced it, it was not a good day for crypto, I can tell you. I mean, uh, it yep. had a huge impact on the market. Yeah, right? it, it really tumbled. But it's also because, uh, in general, China is, is discouraging everything related to crypto, primarily because of the black markets and illegal trade and, and drug trade and stuff like that. And so they're coming down on crypto pretty harsh. But Chinese are very inventive, so they're always finding one way around the law. And so if it's not possible in that area, they'll do it somewhere else. And, and so we'll see how it happens. And probably I, I foresee that the Chinese companies are going to set up uh, data centers in the US. Hmm. I think that Elon Musk is also meeting up with Bitcoin miners to discuss making cryptocurrency more environmentally friendly. I don't know the specifics, but uh, I, I know that he's, he's also thinking about it. But what is he not thinking about, of course? <laughs> Good point. And it has a merit, of course, eh? because of the big energy usage of crypto. We're actually seeing this grabbing up of graphics cards. I mean, this is not only about gaming. Eh? There's a, a chip shortage right now in the yeah. world for every possible chip. And GPUs are used for more than only gaming. Eh? Uh, they are used in the Tesla cars, for example, maybe not the NVIDIA chips, but, but it's so important to use this capacity to the fullest and, and crypto is something very useful and we, we all love it. But at the same time, I think it's an ethical discussion. Do we actually want to burn energy to get this crypto craze going? So it's a, it's a valid question, I think. Yeah. In the meantime, I checked that, guys. I went to the vFriends platform and um, there's... Bad news, all Podcast Panthers, that's the name, the Podcast Panther tokens are all sold. There were five available, so we won't be able to invite Gary. Julie will be happy because the average price that it was sold was 10 eaters. Wow. And in dollars, how much would that be, Steve? What is Any it now? 2,500? I don't know the ether value today, but between 25,000 and 30,000 US dollars, I think, something like that. Yeah, for a 40-minute appearance in the podcast. That's a bargain. Yeah, and it's crazy to see because almost everything is sold on the platform. There were 10, more than 10,000 NFTs. 
So Gary has a very good year there. So that as a side note, but let's stay in China, uh, Pascal, because I, I want to dive into something that really popped up mid-May in the US and in, uh, in Europe, uh, the whole story of Shein. And suddenly, last week it was, there was the news that Shein became the number one shopping app on American phones, pushed Amazon to the number two position. And the truth is that most people that are older than 30 had never heard of Shein before. And if I have it right, but correct me if I'm wrong, they call it the TikTok of fashion because you get so much content, you get so many products that you're exposed to. They're very cheap at the same time. And then based on the data and the algorithms, they predict what the next product should be. And they have this very short production line so they can almost in real time produce new fashion assets and personalize them and create them based on the real time demand in the market. And that philosophy combined with their cheap prices makes them extremely popular among youngsters in Europe and the US. Uh, but everyone was like in shock that suddenly Amazon is not the number one shopping app in the US anymore. I'd love to hear more about that. I yeah, know you're, you're right and you said it's most of it. <laughs> so the rest is just uh, in the details, but it's quite interesting to see how a company that nobody's ever heard about, or at least nobody ever knew that it was Chinese, suddenly kicks off Amazon from the number one in the download app. And this happened with TikTok a long time ago that nobody actually had any clue that this was a Chinese company. Now, this company did it intentionally. They didn't want to know anybody that they were Chinese, of course, for geopolitical reasons. But the other reason is, is also that they're not selling into China. They're only selling globally. But what they're doing is they've been using all the business models and the trends and, and the things that China has really advanced of into one system and focus that on fashion. And the company is uh, about 12 years old now. It started in 2008, but they started as uh, wedding dresses because in, in the US, wedding dresses are pretty expensive. And so they could sell them at six times lower than the price in the US for the same dress, personalized. And so they got a big hit there and then slowly they went into fashion. But the interesting thing is indeed that over the past uh, 10 years, since 2012, they grew uh, at 100% every year. So they doubled every year. And now they're at a valuation of about uh, 46 billion US dollars doing a 10 billion US dollars revenue this year. And so this is, comes out of nowhere. But as you said, the real attention span that people have towards it is because it's cheap products, very cheap. It's very customized. It's high-end fashion. It's like Zara type, but Zara who created that concept of doing designs from over the whole world basically now is done by designers who could be anyone. You could be a designer, I could be a designer. And this is a TikTok model, creators. And these creators can build stuff and then they get connected. And that's the real secret. They get connected directly to the factories in the south of China, which is controlled by Xi'an. And so Xi'an has all these great relationships with all these fashion producers. And these designers can directly create their designs. And then they create these products, these uh, dresses and so on in volumes of 10. They try it out, they send it to the market, and then basically they look through the AI algorithms what sticks, and based on that, they upscale the volume. And that's how they very quickly sometimes create trends. But the other thing is that besides that, they're fashionable, cheaper, and, and very fast as well. I didn't say that yet because they can do it in less than a week to deliver products that were designed by one person somewhere in the world. Well, if you buy something in Zara, it takes probably a month before any new design gets into their shops. And even in the online shopping, it's the same thing. So this is really fast speed, 
but it's quite addictive. And that is to do with the algorithm. The algorithm that really like TikTok knows exactly what you like. And so those younger people on Instagram, on TikTok, they constantly show these fashion designs. And what's cool about it is that it creates this like of stickiness because people see the product constantly and because they're cheap to buy, like they buy like 10 dresses in one day and then they show each of them on the network and they do all the marketing for Shein, just like uh, others would do the marketing for TikTok. So it's free marketing almost. And on the other hand, they use all these influencers as well. So it's in China, they call it key opinion consumer. So any consumer becomes a star and, and using the fashion to actually show how they bought this and how they are. And they're doing the marketing for Shein. So this is a commerce platform that is going to be a standard. But I've looked at it quite in detail because I've, been, I've known about this product for a little while, not too long. But I've looked at the model and to me, it actually combines four business models, which I just very quickly described. It's about Alibaba's model to connect all the data, the CRM, the ERP with the suppliers. So they actually know everything from the suppliers. And so they know how to drive them. It also connects the TikTok model with the stickiness, which is about the algorithms and it's about the, the, the creators, but also the model of social media and mobile e-commerce of China, which is very popular in China, but it's just starting in the rest of the world. Uh, Red being one of them, uh, Taobao, of course, and then uh, Pindodo is the other company, which I'm not going to explain in detail because that's a whole different story. But that's the consumer to manufacturing business model. And this is where I see the West also changing, where the middleman is actually cut out of the equation. And so consumers and designers can talk directly to the factories. And the factories are designing for the market based on the insights of the consumers and of the designers. And that lowers the price, it increases the speed to delivery. Mm -hmm. And so this is a genius model to combine all these models of China into one and then package this to an audience, a, a customer base that is willing to pay more than the Chinese so they don't have to compete with the Alibabas and the TikToks of China. So it's pretty smart. And, and we'll see much more of this company in the future. I have two questions, Pascal. First of all, who is behind this? And second is, I mean, if this would have happened a year ago where all of a sudden this surfaces in the U.S. with, you know, something as spectacular as this, I mean, the Trump administration would have shut it down. And I'm curious what's going to happen under the Biden administration with something like this. Yeah, well, actually, India already shut down Shein and they shut down 59 companies, including WeChat and TikTok. And so if the U.S. would do the same, because some people say, yes, they have so much data on so many consumers now, they know exactly what these people want. Uh, should we shut them down or not? That is a big question indeed. The challenge will be if you want to replicate that and you would say, okay, Amazon or any company wants to become the next Shein, how do you get in actually connected to all these factories? And how do you control that data flow? And how do you control the supply chain? And so it's not that easy. So you have either or, I mean, if Amazon would buy Shein, then the problem is resolved. But otherwise, I think it's a real big issue. Now, the founder, uh, he's from Nanjing, from China. There's only three pictures online of him, and nobody has any clue who he is. Uh, I mean, there's a name I, I can't remember at uh, top of my head. But he's, uh, he's basically been uh, very, very mysterious because he doesn't want to have the fame. I think he's got enough money now and possibilities, and investors are knocking down his door. So he has no reason to be uh, in the spotlight. Yeah, but they cannot be underestimated. I saw their figures of the daily active users. And more than 
of all the visits on fashion sites now in the world go to Shein. Eh? So they have more visitors than H&M, Zara, Uniqlo and yep. Nike all together. So it's huge the size that they gained yep. in just a couple of years. I think I'm going to get the reputation of being the negative Nancy here. But um, what I think that it's at the same time really discouraging to see that a, a company that has quite a strong reputation for a bad customer experience and for quite poor ethics, that this is becoming so popular. Now, I know that the USP here is fast fashion and cheap prices and that it's not specifically quality or, or CX, but I think it says a lot about society, about people caring about the environment or even about people being able to afford um, prices because they are very cheap. Mm -hmm. And so I think we shouldn't forget that as well, even though they have a fantastic business model and all the respect, but there's a darker side to it as well. What is bad about their CX? Because their platform looks really easy to use. Eh? I mean, the customer experience, the people getting the clothes, you often hear that their clothes are really poor quality, bad materials. Um, they don't look like the pictures at all when you put them on. So the quality of the user interface is good, but not the clothes. And also there's a lot of people complaining about the fact that it takes very long time before the clothes arrive. So but they don't. Oh, they don't. <laughs> like, yeah, like a lot of lost packages and then like the horror stories in, in delivery lands that you hear from time to time as well. So plus, totally plus one on, on what you're saying, Laurence. Mm -hmm. I think, Stephen, the, the story that you also I told us, the mirror that you put in front of consumers of, hey, we're, we're talking a lot about sustainability, about ethical behavior, but in the end, our behavior is really showing that a bet on price is still working. And no judgment there, but I think this is a clear example that that has not changed dramatically yet or that those models still win. Um, I think it's a very clear example of that. Mm -hmm. You can't buy a $7 dress or, or a top of $5 and then expect it to have been made in great conditions for the people making it um, in, in great materials. I totally agree on the environment part. And I think that's a real challenge. And, and now that they've become so big and, and important, they will have to do something about that. They never saw the need to do it until now because uh, for them it was just grow, grow, grow. But I think on the quality side, the reality is that the same products that are created by Shein are made by the same factories making Zara and H&M and Nike. And so the quality has nothing to do with Shein. It's just to do with the fact that the turnaround has to be so fast that they often don't have the time to optimize the quality to a lot broader audience. But once they do, they can reach the same quality. I understand that lower price means often lower quality, but the price that Zara buys these products is actually the same price as that uh, the other companies buy them. The only difference is that they sell directly to consumers and don't have the up price and the middleman to pay. And so I think the difference is the price is going to the consumer. It's not going to all the people in between. So I don't completely agree on the bad quality, but yes, if you sell to hundreds of millions of people, sure, there will be people online that say this is rubbish, specifically if it's delivered so fast. And then on the delivery, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why things get delayed. In China, it would always be on time. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew did call Shein the TikTok of e-commerce, but, but let's talk about the real TikTok. Julie, you've been looking into this eh? now. What we see is that TikTok is, according to rumors, trying out a job recruitment tool. How does that work? 
Correct. If we uh, want to uh, have additional next workers in the team, we have to become TikTok experts, apparently, because indeed um, TikTok has reported to be testing a job recruitment tool. So it's it's still very early on, but I think it's uh, interesting to observe how this is really blurring private and professional life. If you look at that, platforms where people are spending fun time and, and of course, seeking advice as well, but... I, basically see it as a source of entertainment as well and to have a yeah just a fun moment now reports to have job advertising and, and job advice as well i think that's remarkable to see it made me think of a, a few months earlier this year we were actually hiring at nextworks as well and you could see two very diverse reactions we didn't hire through tiktok or something extremely innovative but we did ask people to yes of course send your resume but also send a video and we had two sorts of people. You had the people who were totally uncomfortable with sending in a video. And I'm not talking about like 70-year-old people. I'm talking about 30-year-old people who were really uncomfortable with just sending a video telling why they want to work for you. So there I'm like, okay, if the next thing is getting your job on TikTok, I mean, this is this is really leveling up. And on the other hand, we had other people, if you asked for their, their CV, who even, who even said, like, what, a CV? I mean, what are you talking about? This is so old-fashioned. So uh, I think it's really a, uh, just a sign of the world of creativity that we have landed in, which is great. And we also see that this is blurring to the professional life. Like, companies have to adapt and make sure that the work experience from beginning to end is also adapted to that new reality that they have in their private life. So I can imagine, and, and I think it's, it's just brilliant to observe that as a company, you will have to be able to offer people the preferences that they want to be recruited on, that they want to be paid on, uh, take their holidays on. So you, you see the whole personalization trend also happening there. So yeah, curious to see uh, whether it works and whether we'll see sort of like things on other platforms. Jorin, would you uh, use TikTok to apply for a new job? Well, uh, probably that would be a very bad idea because I'm not the best dancer around, but um, I can definitely try. I'm I'm not sure if I would get the job though. But anyway, I, I think it's a very valid idea and a very valid business model of TikTok to do this. Uh, first of all, a lot of youngsters right now are on TikTok. Three, four years ago, it was all about dancing videos. But let's say today, if you take a look at TikTok, it's really about showing who you are and what you do, exactly what LinkedIn is doing today. Yeah? It's about showing who you are and what you do. So in that way, um, TikTok can be a very valuable tool to use to hire people, even for a company that is not necessarily interested in, in TikTok profiles. Uh, it could be very good to do. And for TikTok itself, it's a gold mine. Uh, Data-wise, uh, it says a lot about people if you know what they do, uh, where they work, where they are. But at the same time, job postings are very expensive. So um, everybody who has posted a job in his life knows how much it costs. Uh, may That might be on LinkedIn, that might be in a newspaper. So I'm pretty sure this is very valuable for uh, TikTok. If they can pull it off, it's more than definitely going to work. I was just thinking my oldest son is 12 and he's now discovering TikTok and that's in his perception a social network. Imagine that I show him tomorrow LinkedIn, like this is the real stuff, son. I mean, he's going to think that's like the, the most boring platform in the world. Eh? So it's, it's almost a lost game for LinkedIn uh, a couple of years from now to attract those guys. So I, I, I truly believe that organizations will have to follow and, and move into this new 
content model that is much more real time. It's something completely different, but I, I just wonder what this type of broadcasting evolution will mean for shy people, for introverts. Game over. Because when I was young, like a gazillion years ago, <laughs> I had a, a lot of trouble landing my first serious job because I was insecure and shy and, and introverted. And I'm pretty sure that if I had to film myself back then, I would never have been invited uh, to any <laughs> job or, or to very, very few jobs. So I just wonder if this will result in, in just the most vocal people getting hired which would, I think, be bad for the cognitive diversity inside companies. Yeah, but the same can be said, Laurence, for someone who wasn't good in writing a letter before mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Now you can decide, will you make an audio file? Will you make video? Will you make a graphic thing? Will you make a letter? So now you have all these possibilities. The only thing we could do is write a letter. Mm -hmm. Boring, yeah, and, and if you can't write, that's a big problem. Again, show up as you are uh, and making that possible, I think that's something that we should celebrate as companies, as society, that indeed everybody can show up the way that he or she wants to. And uh, probably it's just old-fashioned to say you have to send a letter and you have to send a video, but just tell us why you, why you want to be here and why this is a match. Yeah. But I also think if you would ask the same question in China, would you be okay to make a video of yourself to apply for a job that nobody would even think this is a strange question? Because live streaming is just the normal of China. It's not a trend anymore. I don't know if any of you have any idea how many live streamers there are who are actually making money with their live stream in China. No idea. Give me a number. Eight billion. No, 130 million. <laughs> 130 million people actually oh, not, make not, money. Not so much, not so much. No, not so uh, much. There's, a, there's more than 650 million live streamers, meaning people that follow the live streams. Wow. But there's 130 that are actually doing this almost as a profession or that are doing it as part of the company. So the interesting thing in China is that employees are live streaming and everybody's live streaming. And so it's normal. So TikTok is Chinese originally. So it makes total sense that they export this concept to the West and, and it will follow. We will have to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about recruitment and one of the biggest problems in recruitment is of course bias, especially if you add technology to the whole spectrum. A lot of people are worried that we're going to have less diversity because of that. And Laurence, you had a topic that you wanted to add to our podcast about this, right? Yes. So last year, Amazon said it would stop providing its facial recognition software to the police for one year. And uh, a few days ago, I think it announced that it will extend this ban until further notice. So Amazon was not the only one uh, to do that. Actually, uh, Microsoft and IBM too stopped supplying facial recognition technology to the police last year. And the reason for that is that police departments use facial recognition to track down suspects, even though the technology has trouble identifying people of color. And just to give an example, several black men have been wrongfully arrested because of that. And of course, the problem of bias in technology is well known. A while ago, the Apple card gave, um, what was it, husband's credit limit that was 20 times higher than that of their wives, in spite of the very same conditions. Or we had Amazon's hiring algorithms, which were discontinued because they tended to reject women's job applications. Or the risk assessment software Compass, which labeled black people almost twice as likely as whites to reoffend regardless of the severity of the crime or the actual likelihood of, of reoffending. So I know biases is not a new thing, but what I find fascinating here is 
how people claim this should be fixed. Amazon, for instance, is waiting for governments to install stronger regulations to govern the ethical use of facial recognition technology. And I find this really strange because you would think that Amazon would want to fix their software instead to prevent it from being racist or, or sexist instead of asking for stronger regulations. And of course, I know that it's more complex than that because at the end of the day, sexism and, and racism are societal problems, not technological problems. And, and software is only biased because it's based on incomplete or, or on biased data. But I think it's fascinating to see that everyone seems to be pointing at everyone else to solve that problem, like tech companies are pointing at governments to regulate the use of tech, and then the government seem to be putting the end responsibility in the hands of the users. Just um, to give an example with GDPR, it's actually mostly the users who have to actively choose how their data is used, instead of making sure that tech companies just don't use their data in a certain way that's not ethical. And so for me, it's clear that tech problems are increasingly uncovering a, a pretty dark side of interconnected societal challenges, which are, are really difficult to solve. But instead of trying to change society, which lies at the roots of these tech problems, we are trying to regulate the use of technology. And you can do that, of course, in, in useful ways, but it's not a real solution to these very complex problems. Yeah, I was actually just thinking, Laurence, this is a very wicked, complex problem. Really prohibiting things is what we see everywhere right now. But is that tech's fault or is that indeed a mirror of society in, in a nutshell? I think we're all afraid that the answer is the last thing. And then how do you start building a more inclusive society that's more than a complex problem to solve? So I had the same reflection when seeing that news And also on the other side, because of course we all acknowledge that it's a complex problem and that we want to fix that. But if you followed maybe a little bit of the lawsuits going on, on for example, not respecting the diversity in gender and race, there are huge lawsuits towards companies as well. For example, if you look at the Byron Allen Media Group, they had a one-pager directed to the CEO of GM to say, hey, there's just too low a percentage of your ad spend that you're doing to black-owned companies. They now sued McDonald's, they sued Comcast. So not saying it's not an issue, but there I'm seeing the same thing, like having that contra lawsuit approach and prohibiting and fining, that's all very negative. So I'm, I'm wondering who could kind of come with incentives that bring people together instead of like punishing each other towards a, a more inclusive society. So maybe somebody else has, has seen better examples than those. The only thing I'd like to pick up on is, and then I fully agree with what both of you are saying, is that it's interesting that it's Amazon's ban on the police use. One of the things that I find fascinating is that I think that in many, many geographies around the world, the police is actually uh, the ones who have the slowest access to new technologies. And I think this is something that we're going to have to remedy as well. Not just fix the software and make sure that there's no bias in there. I fully agree. But beefing up the capabilities of law enforcement with technology and innovation, because we're now in a situation where if you look at organized crime, organized crime is running circles around the authorities because they are adopting new technology way faster than law enforcement. So I would actually 100% you know, agree with the bias issue, but making sure that we 
deliver enough innovation capability into the hands of the government and especially law enforcement, I think is going to be one of the top priorities of any country in in the next uh, 10, 15 years. Yeah, which brings us perfectly, Peter, to our next topic. Uh, We're going to (laughs) move into the world of hacking. Uh, This is the week that we in Belgium discovered that the Chinese government, uh, Piscal, we're not going to talk about it, but we discovered that the Belgian government (laughs) was hacked in the last two years by China, but that's okay. uh, We're we're getting used to that. But I want to talk... Assumed, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Uh. It's a small word. <laughs> I want to talk about something else, and Joren wants to talk about something else, which, in my opinion, this is this is the first time that we've heard this, in my opinion. It probably happened behind the scenes, but this is the first time, in my opinion, in, in my view, that the CEO of a big company, Colonial Pipeline, confirms that they actually paid more than $4 million dollars to hackers that attacked their company. Uh, and you, you tell us all the details because this is a new step in the world of hacking, in my opinion. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's not the first time that this happens. Most of the time, these companies don't tell. Exactly. It's the first time that I see someone giving an interview and saying, I paid $4 million. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and it, it's a lot of money. And it, it was uh, at the time, it was a uh, 75 Bitcoin, I believe. Uh, right now, it would be pennies. But uh, back then, that was indeed $4.4 million. Um, but still, what really strikes me here is the way that this company got hacked in the first place. Because let's not forget, it's colonial pipeline. I mean, hundreds of millions of Americans are dependent on the infrastructure of this company. And what we're seeing here is not something new. And I think uh, what Peter just said, like uh, the government running behind on technology compared to criminals is actually the same at a lot of big organizations. And cybersecurity has never really been a big priority for a lot of organizations. And what we're seeing here is really a wake-up call for every company we have. It's not very clear what happened. Most likely it's just ransomware, um, a crypto locker locking up all the files on the hard disks of uh, Colonial Pipeline, making them inaccessible for the employees and as such everybody who needs them so they couldn't do anything anymore. But it's not the first time it's happening. And if you take a step back, just last year, a water treatment plant in Florida was also affected by something like that. And hackers even managed to get into the systems to change the amount of sodium hydroxide that was being added to the water. So it's not only about oil, It's also about the safety of our water system, about our energy systems. Um, Just take a look at uh, Stuxnet. Maybe you might have heard about Stuxnet in the past, um, but it's actually uh, what I would say, how would I describe it? It's a virus that was created to attack the nuclear installations of Iran um, back in the days in 2010. So this has a lot of potential. And what I'm talking about here is 2010, Stuxnet a nuclear installation being connected to the internet that was being hacked by another country. And it should really be a wake-up call. Why are these systems connected to the internet in the first place? And secondly, why are they not protected better? It's a, a lot of questions that we're raising here. But there was this joke at the company I was working for before, and we were in cybersecurity, and they were always laughing and saying like, hey, the real computer problem is in between the keyboard and the chair. Right? 
It's the person sitting in between the keyboard and the chair. And it's true because all of these hacks are basically the fault of people not aware of what they were doing, clicking on the wrong links, opening the wrong emails. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this is, is the, because I want to make companies aware that they have to educate their people on how they can be hacked and what can happen. I think it's a very important one. I fully agree, Joran, but uh, I think the problem that you mentioned about the users being responsible and that there's always a human element, that, that's well known. The biggest problem I see with many companies and governments as well is that hiring security professionals becomes really difficult because, I mean, I'm a computer scientist myself, but if I go to a security conference, 90% of what is being talked about is complete and utter gibberish or you know, Pascal, pardon my words, but Chinese to me, it's impossible to comprehend. And you know, even if you are a security professional, just keeping up is incredibly difficult. I'm on the board of a bank, as you guys know, just hiring the right security people and making sure that we maintain the quality and that their knowledge is up to date is an incredibly difficult thing. And it's not a money issue, it's about finding these people. And I think this is going to be one of the areas where there is such a huge gap between those who understand and know and the rest that you know, if we don't fix a way to actually bring more people up to speed with this and generate more talent in this, it's going to be an absolute shortage in the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. Uh, last year, FireEye, one of the most notorious cybersecurity companies, was hacked. So <laughs> it tells you quite a lot about the skills of some of these hackers and what we are lacking in people to protect these assets. Let's go to the big tech news of the month that we have in our podcast. And I'm looking at Peter this time. This month, there was an announcement that Google comes with a tool to identify skin conditions, skin cancer in a very early phase. I read an article about that where doctors like always are panicking and are saying, we had Dr. Google uh, do the search. That was already a disaster because if you type in a symptom, it feels you're going to have a slow and painful death every single time. And now they're going to come with an advanced version that's going to be very dangerous because people are going to rely on an algorithm that is just not good enough. That's what I read about this. But what's the real story? What's going on? Well, Dr. Google is very real. So uh, one out of 20 searches on Google is health-related. And that's not just uh, corona-based, but people are just concerned. And of course... You know, I think uh, if you have something or if one of your family members is suffering from something, it's easy to just Google and see, you know, do I see symptoms, etc. Dr. Google has been around for a long time. I mean, some people claim that actually Google is the longest running clinical trial because, you know, we, we know exactly what people are looking for. I think you remember a couple of years ago when, you know, we could actually see the flu season where people were searching on their symptoms, you know, I have a cough or I have a fever, and you could actually see the spread of the flu uh, more accurately than, you know, the health departments themselves. One of my favorites has been that Google actually works in healthcare. Because if you look at something like um, a tick, you know, which you can get from walking into uh, a woods and then you get Lyme disease as a result, Lyme disease is notoriously difficult for a physician to actually detect. But Google actually knows because not only does it see you searching for symptoms, it actually knows if you've been in a forest so they can actually make the correlation. So I don't rule out Dr. Google. 
What happened now is they actually launched an AI tool for skin conditions. And I mean, the, the cameras in our phones have gotten so good and so accurate in the last couple of years that it's actually quite good to be able to detect something that is wrong with your skin that could be benign or malignant. I, you know, but Google is capable of actually just using you know, the camera on your phone to check up. What is very interesting is that Google has been working on this technology for a long time. And using AI and image recognition is something where, you know, you see the medical community now really taking advantage of that. If you remember, this is probably two years ago, we had the very first algorithm that was approved by the FDA. But this was an algorithm to be able to look into your eye and look at a retina scan and be able to detect early signs of diabetes. And a well-trained doctor can do that, but after training hundreds of thousands of retina scans into Google DeepMind, Google could do it with more accuracy than a real human doctor could. Now, what is interesting is the FDA approved that two years ago, but it was still to be used in a controlled environment, say in a hospital or in a doctor's office, where you had professionals to actually use the AI power tool, not by consumers themselves. This is now different because what Google launched is just a simple app that you can put on your phone, look at your skin, and see if it might be something that you need to consult a doctor or not. What is very important is that I heard the criticisms, uh, and I can imagine that if you're a doctor, you might be a little bit threatened by this. But to be very, very clear on this, at this moment, the app that they are launching is only for Europe because in Europe, this app has actually been approved as a class one medical device. It's not to be used actually in the US because the FDA hasn't approved it yet. So this is interesting because you get to the point where these types of applications, you get into the regulatory issue because it's, I think, beyond any suspicion that Google can build this technology, they will. I mean, they are going to do this better and better and more and more accurate. Look at how search evolved in 20 years. This is what's going to happen to the world of healthcare as well. But the big question is, when is the government bodies going to accept that? And as you know, in healthcare, it's one of the slowest moving parts of society. But fundamentally, I absolutely believe that this is the future. You're not just going to Google if you feel a little ill or under the weather. You're going to use your phone with cameras and all sorts of sensors. And I believe the smartphone is going to be a healthcare device. And Google clearly wants to be in on this. They want to be king of the hill when it comes to really making Dr. Google something very, very real. Cool. Yeah. And I think the biggest challenge for Google here will most likely be trust. I know people in general tend to trust Google better than most governments, which I kind of get, but uh, still, it's still about trust. Eh? Do we trust Google enough to handle this data, to uh, protect our privacy, to not advertise products towards us aimed or share data about our illnesses to uh, companies? So that's a big question. In Europe, it might be more important than in the US. So I really wonder how this is going to work. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the biggest benefits is that you're going to have a lot of preemptive scanning now. Uh, like I have to do an annual skin check with a dermatologist, but to make an appointment, it's terrible. I mean, when I call... It's always three or four months out. And then sometimes, I mean, I, I have something going on in my calendar and I want to, you know, help that client first. So I have to reschedule. So sometimes I'm like, 
there's a year in between when I should have gone and when I can actually go, which is a dangerous period to discover skin cancer. A year is like the limit on that. But because of their agendas that are so packed, I mean, it's, it's terrible. So if you would have doubts and you have your phone, I think a lot of people, I mean, there will be a lower barrier for many people who are worried to do a quick scan first before they actually go to a doctor because it's so accessible, it's completely cheap, you don't need to go anywhere. So I think the broadening up the market, uh, increasing the amount of body checks will be a tremendous way forward to make sure that we have less cases of skin cancer. Absolutely. I agree. And the end result is they're not going to tell you if you have cancer. They're going to tell no. you to go to a doctor. Yeah. And that's what a class one medical device is. I mean, it's almost in the same category as a, a scale or a thermometer. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's basically in that category, but it's already going to leave. It's a warning. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a warning. Now, I'm going to stay in the healthcare topic for a second, guys, and we're going to go to China. And Pascal is always very enthusiastic and we hear a lot of positive stories and it excites us what's happening in China. But Pascal, there's also a health problem in China that the working population is declining very fast because people are getting really old and they're not enough young people. Uh, we always think like there are 1.4 billion Chinese people out there, but apparently this is becoming an issue for the economy. Yeah, no, it's a huge issue, but there, there's not 1.4 billion. Um, there's actually uh, 1,411,780,000 to be exact. <laughs> so uh, they computed that or they calculated that in the last census uh, just uh, last week and uh, or two weeks ago it was. And, uh, and it's quite interesting because imagine that you have to go door to door to 1.4 billion people and ask if they actually exist. But what they found out, and that's the scary part of it, and of course it's related to healthcare, because first of all, people live longer, but there's also diseases. And, and, and so the issue is that they found out that they had thought that the population that is older than 65 years old, that this would be about 12.6% of the population. And when they did the count, it turned out to be 13.5%. So they were 1% almost wrong that there were more old people than originally assumed. And so this is kind of like a wake-up call for China because the situation is that Chinese are getting older, there's more old people, and the working population is shrinking. So there's about 18% or 264 million people that are older than 60. And that's almost the whole American population that's older than uh, 60 years old in, in China. And uh, there's about 64% uh, are the working population, around 60%. But that has declined over the past 10 years with almost 7%, while the older population has increased at 5%. So it's a real issue. How are they going to deal with that? Because they get more old people. And we think about Japan immediately that has had this problem and the economy halted because of an older and aging population. Uh, but besides that, the census had some other quite interesting uh, things to show, which I want to share just quickly. I know you all love numbers coming from China, uh, but one of the things is that um, today 64% of the Chinese live in the cities. And 50 years ago, that was only 20%. And this is going to go to 80% in the next 20 to 30 years. So this is an incredible change of society. And with all these old people living in the city and knowing that now almost there's 500 million uh, families in China, but there's also 500 million people that live outside of their family. So every family has one person that is detached from the family. And so there's a lot of anonymity in these cities. And, and the family concept in China being so strong, 
this is starting to fade away a little bit because everybody's somewhere else and there's a lot of old people. So this becomes a, a real issue because you have to care for the old in Chinese culture. Another interesting thing is that um, there's about 9% minorities in China, but they had twice as many births as the Han Chinese. The Han Chinese only grew at 5% over the last 10 years and uh, the minorities were 10%. And so you see that the real problem of this aging population is that Chinese are not making babies anymore. And that has a lot to do, of course, with the one child policy that they weren't allowed to have more than one child in the city specifically and some rural areas. And now they can, they can have two children, that's the new policy, but they don't want any more because a lot of them feel like, yeah, but I've grown up nice, I, I'm okay, and, and this is costing too much, a second child. So this is a huge society problem. So the government has to really take this head on, and uh, they are going to probably raise the pension age, which is at 60 for men and 50 for women. They're probably going to try to lower living costs, and they're starting to build a lot of apartments for renting, not for buying. And they're trying to do everything to encourage women to have more children, which is one professor came up with a brilliant idea in China. And he said, just give them 150,000 euro for every child and there will be more children. And, and so this is kind of like a joke, but it's actually no joke. They're seriously debating whether they should give 1 million renminbi for every child that is actually being born from now on. And so this is how bad the, the situation is. And so for me to wrap this up, I, I think the only way to get out of this problem is that Chinese needs to focus on education and innovation to make the society smarter. And there's the good news is that there's actually the literacy rate went up. And so now it's almost at 99% of uh, the Chinese are literate, can read and write. And there's 15% uh, of the Chinese that have a higher education degree. And so that is actually the positive side of this uh, census, which means that China will probably get smarter before it grows old. Are they going to have enough people? Um, I mean, if, if there's so little working population percentage, how are they going to solve that? Are they going to look international? or? Well, little is, of course, relative. Uh, there's still <laughs> 925 million Chinese working. <laughs> so but there are a lot of old still... people to pay for, too. You know? <laughs> but, but there's also 264 million people that you have to pay for and care for. And, uh, and they're getting older and older. Right now, the uh, life expectancy in China is 77 years. 77. In Japan, it's almost 90. But in China, it's, it will go up to 79. So every 10 years, they get like one year older in China uh, on average. So this is a big problem, yes. But even if uh, it declines, and it will start declining, so now it's like 1,411,780, just so you remember. And, uh, and, and so this will actually decline, but the lowest it should go is really around 1.2 billion. Uh, with about 650 million working population. So I think it's still okay. <laughs> Not debating numbers with Pascal. That's the no, one thing you should no. take away from this we, always. We will always <laughs> lose that, that one. But, you know, if, if we stay on the topic of work, and, and Julie, that's your domain. Eh? In the U.S., we see a new trend that remote workers are getting paid quite a lot, eh? 20,000 U.S. dollars to relocate to small towns. Is this something that is happening in specific industries? Is this something that is motivated by the government? What, what's behind this story? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating bridge to the topic of Pascal as well, because uh, you mentioned the huge urbanization percentage is still where indeed, if you see at this other news fact from the other side of the world, where 
people are actually incentivized to go to rural areas and to to search for their community there. I'm wondering whether China will go the same way. But indeed, what's what's happening is actually that certain areas, I mean, Alabama, Oklahoma, West Virginia, just a few examples are really giving really tangible incentives for people to come and join their communities. And the word communities is kind of um, used uh, on purpose as well, where, where you have members of the community now saying like, the cash got my attention, but the community made me move. So it's like governments going all membership style. Um, so it's the local it's the local government of those small towns that is paying that incentive, right? Yeah, it's city marketing. It's, it's basically the city saying, hey, you come here, you live here, you send your kids to school, you eat in our restaurants, it's good for our local economy. So basically, they see the added value of having more more people in the city. $10,000 pure cash, <laughs> like you have those those flyers where it's really saying offer type cash, you know, it's, I mean, it's pretty, pretty specific. In Imagine a Chinese family that wants some children and move to a small town somewhere. They, they could, they're going to become rich just by moving and making children. <laughs> Probably yes, but uh, no, it's 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 very true. In China, actually, the a similar thing is happening that populations are moving to third, fourth, and fifth tier cities. So you see the same thing, and there's also incentives, big incentives from these smaller towns to to attract them. Shenzhen is one great example. They don't want to attract Chinese; they want to attract foreigners, and and so they are giving a lot of incentives just to go there. But the one difference with China, and I don't want to go into more detail, is that actually every city has a passport in China. And so you, you actually need to have a passport to be living in Shanghai or in Beijing. And if you don't have that, you can't send your children to school in that area and you can't get social security in that area. And that's how they, they make people to go to certain places that otherwise would all flock to Beijing and Shanghai. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see how that community approach, that that um, customer community also accounts for local governments and local cities. And definitely in an era where we just coming from working from home, going towards hybrid work. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how is this going to play together? Like what our companies are going to offer their employees and what our communities going to offer their local citizens and how all these effects will play together. It's a it's the era of creativity, I would say. I just wonder also if a consequence of all this remote work and, and living where you want could be that the war for talent will become even more ruthless for employees around the world as there's just more supply now. Um, and I think it also might result in the fact that people could maybe be getting paid less for, for two reasons. First, because obviously the supply is becoming bigger and you can hire basically anyone in the world. Um, and then second, because their cost of living will be lower in these remote places than if they would, for instance, live in Palo Alto or something. Like Facebook, for instance, has been reported to tie remote pay to the location uh, of their employees already. So so that's uh, fascinating to see, I think. Yeah, I think the, the true question also becomes what's value for somebody individually. Um, somebody might value a huge paycheck uh, more, uh, but somebody else just wants the freedom and, and wants to seaside to work from. And I think there again, we, we see personalization making its first step in the business world, I think. Well, it's an interesting move. And eh? you see how the technology suddenly has an impact on, on city marketing, on the way that people live and what people expect. Laurence, I want to come back to you. Throughout the, the podcast, you, you've talked a couple of times about the impact on sustainability, the impact on diversity. 
and you wanted to add a really cool topic. Uh, you wanted to introduce us to a platform that can calculate climate risk for companies, which sounds really cool uh, because a lot of companies are really worried about the impact of climate change on their business and their assets. Which company is this and what are they doing exactly? Uh, so I wanted to talk about Servist, which does uh, some pretty interesting things, actually. So their AI-based data platform uses public and private data sources, machine learning and statistical science uh, to help companies manage climate risk and down to the asset level. Now, if you're wondering what this buzzword bingo actually means, their first product is called EarthScan, and um, it allows you to calculate the impact of flooding and of droughts and of extreme temperatures on your company or, or even your government. Um, for instance, it could tell you not to build a factory in a certain area because flooding will increase there uh, over the next years. And so the aim is to help companies expect climate events like um, the fires in Australia, the droughts in Europe or the winter freeze in Texas. And the news about Service is that it has now raised $30 million um, in a Series A funding, some of which even comes from Mark Benioff's uh, Time Ventures. So it's clear that climate tech is, is definitely on the rise. And another popular example uh, would be Lanza Tech, which is a, a carbon capture company, which uh, recently raised $72 million and which has already worked with companies like Siemens and ArcelorMittal. And though a lot of these climate tech companies offer very useful solutions, I think it's also important that what they do should not give us uh, some false sense of security. Um, for instance, carbon capture solutions are, are, are very useful, but they are also very expensive. Um, and the best way is, of course, still to, to switch fossil fuels with renewable energy. And also to me, it almost feels perverse to realize that some of these companies are building a business model that benefits from keeping the status quo when it comes to the climate. Like Lensatec will be out of business. Should we switch to clean energy or, or service too? Would benefits from climate change getting worse and having a bigger impact on companies? So I'm all for companies that try to fight climate change in one way or another, but it's, I think it's also necessary to think about the unintended consequences of certain business models as well. Just to give another example, like Uber at first intended to decrease the number of cars by sharing them, but the ride-hailing business also resulted in some people buying cars just to make money and in others switching maybe from public transportation for Uber. So the unintended results was more cars on the road there instead of less. So I think, I think it's important to think about that too. But I think it's also really fascinating to see that more and more companies are looking into ways to, to make money from climate change, which is obviously also a good thing. I could imagine that like a, a platform like Service, that the real estate industry could be really interested in that for, for private homeowners. I just imagine today that your house is worth half a million, but what will it be worth in 2040? And what will the impact on climate be? Today, nobody takes that into, or hardly anyone takes that into account when they're buying a house. But I could imagine five, six, ten years from now, that's going to be like a standard part of the exercise if you make a valuation of a house that you want to buy or sell. Yeah, sure. The market is going to be huge. Yeah, we're not going to solve climate change in the next 30 or 40 years. So I can imagine that a lot of people want to make money from that because it's, it's going to be more and more important. 
Yeah, and let's not forget about agriculture. Imagine that um, if you want to start a new agriculture business, a factory that is, for example, using groceries for your production and you want to build a new factory, you want to know where to build it. You're not going to build it in a in a climate or in a place where it's going to get very dry and very hot in the next 20 years because you know that you will have a supply problem in the future. So agriculture is a very important one. And energy as well, if only indeed you mentioned it, uh, Laurence, Texas would have had this technology. They might have uh, well, known before the disaster actually happened that they, they would have had a problem with uh, the extreme cold. But this and, and all these investments that we see happening in climate technology and, and Stephen, I'm going to hijack your uh, podcast here because I, I wanted to jump on the subject of sustainability in investments anyways. So I think this is a, a very good bridge towards that. But hey, what Be my guest, Jürgen, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it just uh, b because it, this actually nicely fits together. Eh? Um, yeah. It's 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 really what we're seeing over the past years is that sustainable investments they have exploded. I mean, in 2020 alone, sustainable bonds alone raised more than 490 billion USD last year. Okay, in China terms, that might be peanuts, but still, I mean, 490 billion USD just for. Um, climate bonds or sustainable bonds. And then we, then if you take a look at stock prices of companies like NIO, Sunrun, Orsted, they have all gone through the roof. So a lot of investments are happening right now um, in sustainable companies only. And um, apparently this guy, um, Tarek Fancy, um, I fancy his name, sorry for <laughs> the bad joke, but uh, Tarek Fancy is an, uh, an ex-BlackRock investment banker, is warning us for all these investments in sustainable assets. And Laurence, he actually thinks the same thing as you do, because he is convinced that these investments don't solve anything. We're investing a lot of money in sustainable organizations. Uh, more and more investment funds are saying that they are not investing anymore in sustainable companies. But the reality is that it just gives us a good feeling, but doesn't really solve a problem. And at the same time, well, let's be honest, investing is still about money. And as long as we have people that don't care about investing in companies that are not sustainable at all, people are keeping and are going to invest in these organizations, especially if they make money. So I just wanted to mention it because I believe that we still have a long way to go uh, to reach net zero carbon. And investments apparently don't seem to be the right solution, but Let's stay positive, Laurence. Let's hope that we will be able to solve it. We will need carbon capture technology. We will need companies like Servest to solve problems. So let's support them in the meantime and, and go for it. Maybe just add on to that, uh, Joren. I think it's going to be, I think, an opportunity to really, really fundamentally change some of the traditional players in that direction, where it's not just about lip service, but it's about real fundamental change. And in that sense, I just saw the news that ExxonMobil just had its board uh, seats changed in the sense that Engine One is the big activist movement that wanted to put four new board members on the ExxonMobil board. And uh, the shareholders of Exxon really agreed because two of the board members have been approved. So I think this is a fundamental thing where, you know, the biggest oil company in the world or one of the biggest oil companies in the world, certainly in the U.S., is capable of being changed by shareholders and because of its board into hopefully what is 
a much more positive new direction. So I think if we can change those companies who really have an enormous impact on the world, I think it's going to uh, make this place a much better environment. Absolutely. And a tool like Serviced, Laurence, could have a big impact on actually making these companies aware of the risk that climate change could pose for them. So I'm pretty sure there's a, well, there's a silver lining. I still believe that uh, we can change something there. Yeah, but it's a group effort. We talked about this before, like these type of wicked problems. It's a uh... You need a consumer, you need companies, you need government, you need not only local governments, but global regulation. It's a completely group effort. And and I think also that the media has an important role to play in this, because the problem I had with uh, the article that you were referring to, Joren, is actually the title, which uh, for the, the English listeners translates into something like Sustainable Investing Harms the World. And obviously, I know how clickbaits uh, titles work, and, and I have to admit that I've used them myself. Um, but this is really a delicate, impactful, and, and almost emotional subject for many. And we all know how it works. People who are interested in these kinds of problems will read it because they know that it's a clickbait title and they will want to be more informed. And then you have those people who deny climate change and they will read the title and think, aha, I knew that this sustainable bullshit is doing fuck all because they just read the title. Um, and then I think that, that media has, has a role to play here as well. Yesterday, I had a, a session about sustainability with a European fashion retailer and, and there was this sustainability expert and, and he kept saying it takes a village to raise a child. You cannot decide as one company to be sustainable and act sustainable. It's the network, it's it's the suppliers, it's the shareholders, it's the customers, it's the employees. It takes a village to raise a child. And I think that's exactly what we've learned from the two topics that you guys just talked about in, in the last part of the podcast, that everything is interconnected. But if we can add all these tools together, and as Peter mentioned, if some of those really big organizations send out some signals to the world, those are major steps to make a difference. But it takes a village to raise a child. I think that's, uh, that's the conclusion of this debate, which is a positive note, I think, to end our episode of Radar for this month. Um, thank you guys for joining in. Thanks for all the anecdotes. And uh, thank you to our listeners to tune in. Um, if you want to do us a favor, just subscribe to this podcast, leave a review and tell at least one of your friends that you enjoyed listening to it and tell them that they can join us as well. That would mean the world to us. So thanks everyone. And we're going to be back next month with a new episode of Radar by Nextworks. Take care. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.